The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. First it was Russians, then it was Nazis. It's Thursday, August 17th, 2017. Thank you very much for listening and for supporting this free independent news when you use and bookmark the Amazon links at buzzburbank.com. It's too early to say which day will be darker, the coming Monday in the solar eclipse or any day since last Friday. The days have already been darkened by racism run amok and a president who lacks a moral compass to share with the nation. As if in a time warp, our top concerns suddenly involve Russians and Nazis. It started Friday night on the University of Virginia campus with an unlawful assembly. White nationalists with torches chanting blood and soil and white lives matter had arrived early and began marching long before their big rally at noon the next day. There were also counter-protesters and minor injuries with civilians firing pepper spray and police making one arrest. More about the folks at that incident in a moment. But the main event was Saturday in a park near a soon-to-be-removed statue of Confederate General Robert E. Lee. Anticipation of that event brought the biggest deployment of Virginia State Police in 30 years. But no one was ready for what happened the next day. White nationalists again appeared ahead of the scheduled noon rally for the entire list of like-minded groups, KKK, Nazis, alt-right, and others. Former Ku Klux Klan imperial wizard David Duke was there talking about fulfilling the promises of Donald Trump to take the country back. Klansmen were there on Saturday in robes and hoods along with guys in Hitler t-shirts carrying signs about foreigners and gays and praising racism. A self-styled civilian militia showed up wearing their camos and carrying long guns, said they were there to keep the peace. Things quickly got out of hand. Police shut it down or tried to at about 25 minutes before the rally was to begin. After police and guard troops dispersed the white nationalists, one of them returned and, using a recent Al-Qaeda terror technique, plowed his car into a group of counter-demonstrators, killing one and injuring 19 others. Fifteen other people got hurt that day in the street fighting and panic. Two Virginia State police officers were killed when the helicopter that had helped them get the big picture on the trouble spots crashed. The 20-year-old driver of that car, a longtime fan of the Nazis, was reportedly nervous as he faced charges, including second-degree murder. It is at times of national nervousness and worry that a president takes command, says the right things, and soothes that widespread anxiety. A normal president. It was hours before Trump responded. Finally, under pressure, he did. And in that response, Trump did not call out the groups that have supported him, groups whose supporters Trump retweeted during the campaign, the groups that have become emboldened by his tough talk, his immigration policy, his Muslim ban, and his alt-right staffers in the White House. Instead of calling out the white nationalists, the Nazis, the Klansmen, and the alt-righters, Trump put the blame on, quote, many sides, many sides, he said. And then he called for unity, as if white nationalists and their opponents should hug it out. Let's come together as one, he tweeted. The White House has not made the usual announcement that the president has called the mother of the woman who was killed. On Tuesday, Trump told reporters he'd reached out to her and muttered something that may have referenced his condolence on Twitter. Trump had tweeted his condolences to the woman's family, including, quote, best regards to those who were injured. 
Trump also had no plans to travel to Charlottesville, especially since he would not be welcomed there, even though such a trip would also be normal presidential behavior. The Justice Department announced it will investigate the apparent civil rights violation in that deadly car attack. But the president, who had been so vocal, so quick to tweet on so many things, was suddenly not so vocal. It was two days later. He took another swing at it, this time including the Klan and the Nazis, but without mentioning the alt-right movement. Trump has been consistently slow to condemn the words of white nationalists, and the consensus has been that Trump's first reaction, to skip over them, reflects his true feeling. That was underscored on Tuesday when Trump asked reporters, what about the alt-left? At an event to announce an infrastructure plan and environmental rules that would be shelved to accommodate it, the plan was for Trump to get off the elevator in Trump Tower in New York, make his announcement, and get back on the elevator. But then, to the surprise of Trump's staff who had laid out this plan, the president spoke for 15 minutes about Charlottesville. This is not what the staff had planned. New Chief of Staff John Kelly hung his head in discomfort or embarrassment or both, quoting a White House staffer, it was all him. The staff didn't know Trump had the document that he drew from his suit pocket. It was a large print quote from his original statement in which he condemned violence and called for unity. Trump was angry about the criticism he'd heard for taking so long to respond and to respond so weakly. He defended his delay, saying, I wanted to make sure, unlike most politicians, that what I said was correct. Trump said he would never rush to make a political statement without knowing all the facts. In his off-the-cuff tirade Tuesday, Trump again tried to blame the counter-protesters who killed or caused the death of no one that day. He accused them of violence when there is no evidence of that. Although there were a few anarchists present, the counter-protesters were not violent. Trump labeled all the counter-protesters as the alt-left. He tried to put them on the same level as those who had come in hatred by defending those who had come in hatred. He said of the Tiki Torch troopers, not all those people were neo-Nazis, believe me, not all those people were white supremacists by any stretch. And then, having already painted himself into a corner, he dipped the brush again. Very fine people on both sides, said Trump, adding again, there's blame on both sides. It was a reinforcement of the idea that hate is a side, just as legitimate as the Americans who oppose hate groups, and that activist racists are, quote, very fine people, too. He also spoke of the purpose of the white nationalist protest to march against the removal of statues honoring the side that lost the Civil War, the side that fought for slavery, the side that fought the United States of America. This week, said Trump, it is Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson. He continued, is it George Washington next? Where does it stop? Maybe it stops between the founding fathers who did own slaves and those who fought against the United States of America in defense of slavery. Maybe it isn't wise to put Stonewall Jackson on par with George Washington and Thomas Jefferson, but this president did that. And he had minimized a terrorist attack, an Al-Qaeda-style attack by a known Nazi sympathizer by trying to spread the blame to the nonviolent people who oppose racism. Klan spokesman David Duke again praised and thanked this president and Trump's condemnation of, quote, leftist terrorists. 
Donald J. Trump has again emboldened racists, including Klansmen, white nationalists, and neo-Nazis. He's emboldened the so-called alt-right and the rest of the 908 groups in America. Trump has also still failed to acknowledge the car attack as an act of terrorism, even though his own national security advisor has labeled it that precisely. And he's floated the idea of pardoning former Arizona Sheriff Joe Arpaio as a nod and a wink to the white nationalists who still hold out hope for the man who makes it a little more okay to be racists out and proud. And Trump has scheduled a rally of his own for Arizona next week, which might be the time he'd make that announcement. The mayor of Phoenix has indicated Trump is not welcome there, that Trump's appearance, especially to announce a pardon of Arpaio, is another call to violence. And even if Trump doesn't pardon Arpaio, just saying that he might was a message of hope for the alt-right. Even Republicans who had put all their political hopes in Trump were nauseated, and they were more numerous and more unified and more critical of him than they have ever been, especially after he'd attacked their leader, Mitch McConnell, for not repealing Obamacare. Orrin Hatch, Chuck Grassley, and Marco Rubio were among the most prominent names calling on Trump to call evil by its name. My brother didn't give his life fighting for Hitler for Nazi ideas to go unchallenged here at home, wrote Senator Hatch. Their leader had failed to lead, except perhaps in a very dark direction. The public seemed even more disappointed and angry. Social media exploded with outrage about Trump's failure. Thousands of counter-protesters turned up at New York's Trump Towers. The president returned for the first time since inauguration. He could see them from his helicopter as he landed on the roof. There were also protests in Seattle, Denver, San Francisco, Richmond, Baltimore, Atlanta, Jacksonville, Chicago, Terrytown, and Los Angeles. And in Durham, North Carolina, where anti-alt-right protesters lassoed and pulled to the ground a Confederate soldier statue that has stood there since 1924, the protesters stomping, spitting on, and kicking the statue when it was down. One woman has now been arrested for that vandalism. The inscription on the statue said it was to honor the Confederate States of America. The corporate business community, which was so optimistic about the election of a president and a Congress that share their goal of deregulation, that business community is slowly backing away from Trump. Maybe not so slowly. The exodus from Trump's two business advisory councils began after Trump announced he's bailing on the Paris Climate Agreement. That's when SpaceX CEO Elon Musk and Disney's Robert Iger walked away. But the exodus this week over Trump's failed response to Charlottesville was more than triple that. It started with the exit of Merck Pharmaceuticals chairman Kenneth Frazier. Trump responded to that exit faster than he had responded to the Charlottesville news, and much more enthusiastically, saying that departure would give Frazier, quote, more time to lower rip-off drug prices, all caps, exclamation point. The CEO of Under Armour was the next to jump ship, and then the head of the Alliance for American Manufacturing quit. That was four corporate leaders disassociating themselves from Trump because of his Charlottesville non-response. Then two more resignations, bringing the total to six. The head of the AFL-CIO abandoned Trump and took his deputy chief of staff with him. She also served on the councils. Trump angrily responded to the mass defection and claimed he had more corporate leaders lined up to replace those who had walked out. Trump got a public scolding from the corporate leaders who remained, Intel, GE, Dow Chemical, Whirlpool, Campbell Soup, and International Paper. 
Lockheed Martin and Walmart among them. Some of those companies, Campbell's Soup to name one, were facing boycotts, one effort including the hashtag Soup Nazis. Then came word that the CEO at J.P. Morgan was being pressured to quit. Then came the seventh and eighth resignations over Charlottesville, the tenth since Trump set up his council, all because of Trump's words and policies. Yesterday, the CEOs of 3M and Campbell's Soup walked away, prompting Trump to say he was disbanding his business councils entirely, despite all the CEOs he claimed to have standing in line. Trump took credit for the disbandment, even though the CEOs had a conference call just among themselves beforehand to make that decision themselves, allowing Trump to take the credit. The best and the brightest Trump had promised to deliver a better economy have now abandoned him. But before they could all go, he broke up with them first. Trump blamed his negative reviews on the news media after again calling a CNN reporter fake news to his face, Trump tweeted the image of a train running over a CNN reporter. It was, however, the President of the United States who had gone off the rails in front of his nearly 36 million Twitter followers. He had retweeted the image of a person being run down just three days after a white nationalist fatally ran down Heather Heyer. Fake news can't stop the Trump train, read the cartoon's caption. Trump soon deleted that tweet but not until it had already been retweeted by hundreds of people and captured in screenshots for history to judge. As with Charlottesville, Trump's first instincts spoke the loudest. The nation's military leaders, five of the Joint Chiefs, weighed in, also condemning racism because the president hadn't done it adequately. Their message? That white nationalists are not welcome in the U.S. military and that they will not find companionship there. There is one other fascinating aspect to what happened in Charlottesville Friday night and Saturday afternoon. Although Klansmen were there in their hoods and some of the white nationalists wore masks, the vast majority of those who turned out for this rally wore no disguises. Their faces were photographed by the thousands in broad daylight on Saturday and by tiki light Friday night. Police, journalists, and others have made progress identifying the protesters. If you think posting the wrong thing on Facebook can ruin your career, talk to the 20-year-old University of Nevada student whose picture has been widely published by the news media and by people on social media. Peter Jatanovic was photographed in his white polo shirt on the front lines of the illegal white nationalist protest on the University of Virginia campus on Friday night. He was carrying a tiki torch and appeared to be yelling. He appeared to be angry. Peter says now he is not a racist, but someone who just believes there needs to be more emphasis on European culture in the U.S. Wink, wink. He says he's also gotten death threats. There are at least two petitions back at the University of Nevada's Reno campus to expel Peter. His job there is in jeopardy since he also works at the school. And that's just one guy from just one picture. Out of thousands, there were thousands of other well-lighted and clearly photographed faces in Charlottesville over the weekend. One by one, they're being outed on the Internet and worse. A man has already lost his job after being identified as a white nationalist, his job at a libertarian hot dog restaurant in Berkeley, California. They even put a sign on the restaurant's door saying he doesn't work there anymore. Cole White is now looking for employment elsewhere. Wish him luck.
or don't. Nigel Croft has lost his job as a mechanic near Charlotte, North Carolina, for his now permanently recorded participation in the White Power March. He was photographed standing alongside the man accused of killing Heather Heyer when he mowed down a crowd of people who were standing against hate. Nick says he doesn't care if he never finds work again. In any event, these well-known faces will be haunted by their own images for the rest of their lives and beyond as they appear in future historical texts. With indications it might be facing its own trouble, Baltimore took down four of its Confederate statues in the dark of night early Wednesday morning. Charm City wanted not only to avoid the death and injury of Charlottesville, it wanted to avoid the statue's destruction. Some activists had threatened to tear down the statues, as happened in Durham. One of the statues had already been splattered with red paint. Baltimore's mayor says she got advice on how to go about this from the mayor of New Orleans, who had used a similar approach after city officials got death threats over the planned removal of the Crescent City's Confederate monuments. Baltimore Mayor Catherine Pugh says her advice to cities that plan to follow suit is do it quietly and quickly. Many other locations do plan to follow suit. The governor of Virginia says he wants all Confederate statues removed from public view in that state. At Heather Heyer's funeral yesterday, her mother said that the murder of her daughter was to shut her up, adding, well, guess what? You just magnified her. Those in attendance rose to their feet, applauding and cheering. A neo-Nazi website that mocked Heather has effectively been banned from the Internet by GoDaddy and Google. The white nationalist event scheduled for September 11th on the Texas A&M campus has now been canceled out of what the school calls safety concerns. The white nationalist organizing the event, Preston Wigginton, had promoted the event with a press release headline, Today Charlottesville, Tomorrow Texas A&M. Preston Wigginton's September 11th tomorrow has just been canceled. But there are right-wing protest marches planned for at least nine cities this coming weekend in Atlanta, Austin, Boston, L.A., Mountain View, California, New York, Pittsburgh, Seattle, and Washington, D.C., the white nationalists aren't giving up either. With this nine-city march on Google to protest Google's firing of a misogynist employee. In other racism news, a member of the Aryan Brotherhood of Texas has been sentenced to 20 years in federal prison for selling meth. He is the 89th member of that gang to be convicted in the past seven years. Altogether, they are serving over a thousand years behind bars. The feds suspect the Aryan Circle and the Aryan Brotherhood of Texas have killed several people, assaulted others, and tortured one man with a blowtorch. Despite the efforts to steady the Trump White House from within, Trump is still being Trump, and it's costing him in the polls. The latest Gallup poll taken after the Korea scare but before Charlottesville put Trump's approval at its lowest level yet for the poll, 34%. Barely one in three voters still support him, and it's down 12 points from when he took office. And although Trump's approval rating among Republicans remains high, 77%, even it had slipped by five points in just over a week. Trump still has a few points to go before beating the low record set by Nixon, Carter, and both Bushes. He's already set a record for 200 and some days in office. And this poll was taken before Charlottesville. The next poll will reflect Trump's mishandling of Charlottesville. 
and although impeachment still isn't on the table, it should be, according to Salon.com writer Bob Seska. Thank you, Buzz. Now is an era of sadness and despair in America. Not only have right-wing extremists and Nazis, mostly composed of deeply entitled and privileged young white men, marched openly in our streets, pushing well beyond free speech by committing acts of deadly violence and terror against counter-protesters, but it's become abundantly clear that our chief executive, the President of the United States, is both an enabler and a sympathizer to their lost cause. There have been many occasions throughout the past two years when Donald Trump has made me embarrassed to call myself an American. There's his disgraceful and unpresidential behavior, often made obvious multiple times daily. There's the disturbing reality that he's been politically successful both despite and because of his erratic bullying, which is not reflective of a strong leader, but rather a fledgling authoritarian, ignorant bigot, and amoral toddler. On Saturday and again on Tuesday, however, Trump revealed himself to be far worse, given his between-the-lines and overt support for white supremacist goon squads and, yes, Nazi terrorists inside our national borders marching in our streets. It was bad enough that Trump has surrounded himself with alt-right white supremacists like Sebastian Gorka, Steve Bannon, and Stephen Miller. It was bad enough that Trump constructed his entire political message around a racist dog whistle, appealing explicitly to the, quote, forgotten men and women of America. There was little mystery about what color they were. It was bad enough that throughout his campaign and presidency so far, Trump has pandered to aggrieved white people angry about Black Lives Matter and the first black president, while he simultaneously demonized non-whites, be they immigrants or citizens. And then in Bedminster, New Jersey, on both Saturday and again on Tuesday, he vindicated all our suspicions with the most atrocious presidential remarks delivered in generations. While victims of the graphic, horrifying terror attack in Charlottesville were still covered in freshly drawn blood, including and especially the late Heather Heyer, the president meekly denounced the, quote, hatred, bigotry, and violence of the day. By itself, that would have been passable. The president instead decided to add his own apparently improvised qualifier, quote, on many sides, on many sides. In other words, the white supremacist who rammed his Dodge Challenger into a crowd of anti-fascist protesters, killing higher and injuring 19 others, is on the same level as the counter-protesters who didn't kill or severely injure anyone that day. This according to your president, the ironically dubbed leader of the free world. The president's many sides line also appeared to link the deadly Charlottesville terror attack with Black Lives Matter protesters in Ferguson, Missouri, and other activists who, again, haven't engaged in any acts of terror whatsoever, nor are linked in any way to the Holocaust and other atrocities of World War II. Making matters worse, the president refused to unilaterally condemn the Nazis and white supremacists who assembled in the name of defending in this case violently, the Robert E. Lee statue in Charlottesville, and perhaps more importantly for them, expressing their perceived grievances in an age of broadening equality and civil rights. Again, it's worth repeating, the president refused to condemn Nazis, actual self-identified neo-Nazis with their snappy World War II German cosplayer regalia, their matching Nazi helmets, their khaki slacks, and their combat boots. We know exactly why Trump deliberately sidestepped what so many other prominent Republicans and Democrats said in response. We know that Trump performs exclusively to his base. No one else matters beyond those represented best by his googly-eyed, rally-attending disciples. 
These are people who largely do not identify as racist or Nazis, but who seem perfectly comfortable sticking it to perceived outsiders, as well as the liberal benefactors of those quote-unquote others. We know that Trump has no problem with relentlessly blasting his enemies, yet neo-Nazis and white supremacists are somehow off-limits. Indeed, the only people Trump consistently refuses to condemn are Nazis, such as the Unite the Right goons in Charlottesville, and authoritarians such as President Duterte of the Philippines, President Erdogan of Turkey, and of course, Vladimir Putin. Trump was perfectly comfortable comparing the American intelligence community with Nazi Germany a few months back, but he defiantly refused to condemn the actual Nazis marching in his backyard, 90 minutes south of the White House. Trump was more than happy to attack his own attorney general and his own party's Senate leader. He condemned war hero John McCain. He repeatedly condemned the judges of the Ninth Circuit. Hell, Trump condemned both Saturday Night Live and Nordstrom. But he's afraid to condemn despots like Putin or the Nazis who attacked American citizens in Charlottesville. Why? I think you know the answer. By now, you've probably seen the shocking video of the organizer of the Unite the Right gathering, Jason Kessler, being chased away by Antifa protesters and others still hurting from Saturday's tragedies. Knowing that our president, in addition to being a pawn of the Kremlin and a profound embarrassment to the nation, also happens to be an apparent sympathizer with Nazis and white supremacists, it's past time that we make some hard choices as citizens. Perhaps it's time to chase Trump away with the same vigor as Kessler was run off. Do we collectively demand the swift resignation or impeachment of the president for his trespasses, or do we continue to endure this tyrant through the next election, even though Trump's accomplices in Moscow might well seek to skew the election in his favor again? Do we continue to tolerate Trump and his team of racist advisors and the actions of the pathetic young men they're animating? If, after only 210 days, neo-Nazis are so empowered by a sympathetic president to commit murders as they did on Saturday, what will America look like 200 days from now? What will America look like after Trump appoints more top officials while, quote, deconstructing the administrative state and dealing in unnecessary nuclear brinksmanship? Let us not choose to find out. We've endured incompetent presidents before. We've endured criminals in the Oval Office before. But we've never had both a Nazi appeaser and an apparent Russian puppet in the White House before. Now we're beginning to see the real and fatal consequences of allowing a terrifyingly incompetent villain to ascend to this station, and matters can absolutely get worse. There's no silver lining here, just a raw and mandatory urgency for Donald Trump to be legally ejected from his intolerable stewardship of the American presidency. I'm Bob Seska for Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Thank you, Bob. Catch him every Tuesday and Thursday on The Bob Seska Show here at RealmNetwork.com. And I'm proud to be now one of the regular guests on that program. I'll join Bob again this coming Tuesday, October 22nd. Democrats in the House want to vote tomorrow on censuring Trump for his pathetic response to Charlottesville. They will need the approval of House Speaker Paul Ryan and at least two dozen Republicans to approve that censure. A censure holds no legal sway. It is simply a public scolding from Congress. Can Republicans do even that much? As this dark week unfolded, we did hear from more Republicans and more clearly their objections to Trump's claim of two sides. For the first time, more Republican leaders called out Trump by name or title to let it be known they do not stand with him on this. Senators Lindsey Graham and John McCain, Marco Rubio, Jeff Flake, and Cory Gardner, and Jerry Moran, Ohio's Governor Kasich called Trump's remarks pathetic. 
Congressional Representatives Ed Royce, Leonard Lance, Will Hurd, and former Florida Governor Jeb Bush, they each called out Trump for the terrible thing he's now done. Four former presidents have condemned racism in the wake of Charlottesville and the president's lack of response, including Bill Clinton and Barack Obama. Obama's tweet already becoming the most liked tweet of all time. The two presidents, Bush, released a joint statement denouncing racism but did not mention the current president. Mitt Romney took the same route, not mentioning Trump by name. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has also avoided mentioning Trump by name, although McConnell is reportedly very upset about the effect this will have on his Republican agenda. McConnell issued a statement to say there are no good neo-Nazis, adding we have a responsibility to stand against hate and violence wherever it raises its evil head. Paul Ryan also tweeted against white supremacy, but also did not mention Trump by name or title. These are the elected officials who will have to decide whether the president needs to be impeached. With the hashtag impeach Trump trending on Twitter, many Americans are ready. Between this and Russia, the latest on the Russia investigation, another episode of The Fire and the Fury and America's Drugs of Choice after this. Well, at least your ears can be happy. And happy ears is what you'll have when you pop in a brand new pair of earbuds from tweakedaudio.com, especially the new Hegon Sport earbuds with silicone caps to help them stay in place. They're water-resistant with a tangle-free cord and a travel pouch. Like other tweaked audio products, the Hegon Sport Buds include an inline mic, a gold-plated plug, and of course, extra gels. The Hegons are orange and gray, but Tweaked Audio's other earbuds come in a range of colors and materials, including wood. You can even get buds in sets of two or three, and Tweaked Audio earbuds just sound better. You certainly can't beat the prices for this level of quality guaranteed, and the shipping is free anywhere in the world. And because everything does sound better on Tweaked Audio earbuds, you can get an extra one-third off their already great prices if you check out with the code BBNC at TweakedAudio.com. Thank you for supporting this news through TweakedAudio.com and all my other great sponsors or through the donate button at BuzzBurbank.com. The Trump campaign's desire to have a dialogue with Russia manifested itself in March of 2016, according to the Washington Post. The information in that Post story comes from just part of the over 20,000 pages of emails and other documents from the Trump campaign as requested by congressional investigators. From what's been read to Post reporters, it was 18 months ago when one of Trump's just-selected foreign policy advisors wrote an email to seven other Trump campaign officials offering to set up a meeting between, quote, us and the Russian leadership to discuss U.S.-Russia ties should candidate Trump become president. There were adults in the room who resisted the idea. A co-chairman of the campaign replied he thought the campaign ought to check with the NATO allies first. Another saw legal pitfalls, including violations of the U.S. sanctions against Russia, not to mention the Logan Act, which bans U.S. citizens from negotiating with a foreign government. But inexperienced Trump foreign policy advisor George Papadopoulos, who had made the offer, didn't let it go. Trump had, after all, called Papadopoulos an excellent guy. Papadopoulos sent six requests to Russia for a meeting between the campaign's officials and Russia's officials, perhaps even Vladimir Putin himself. Papadopoulos told higher-ups in the campaign he was acting as an intermediary for the Russian government. 
Three months later, Donald Trump Jr., Jared Kushner, and campaign manager Paul Manafort met with a Kremlin lawyer on the promise of dirt on Hillary Clinton. The emails also revealed that Manafort rejected Papadopoulos' request to set up a meeting between Russian officials and Trump himself. But in July and again in September, Trump's senior foreign policy advisor, then-Senator Jeff Sessions, met with Russia's ambassador to the U.S., Sergei Kislyak. Trump's foreign policy advisor Carter Page went to Moscow to speak at a university just a few weeks after Papadopoulos asked his bosses if campaign advisors and aides could accept some of the invitations that were now pouring in from Russia. In monitoring the Russians last year, the CIA noticed a striking number of sudden contacts between the Russian officials and the Trump campaign, so said former CIA Director John Brennan to the House Intelligence Committee. Papadopoulos had written in late April that Russia had suggested a Trump visit to Moscow. Putin wants to host, he wrote. Russia has been eager to meet with Mr. Trump for some time, he wrote. Manafort made it clear there would be no such meeting and that that fact needs to be on the record. We need someone to communicate, wrote Manafort, that DT is not doing these trips. Manafort's spokesman says this proves there was no collusion, at least not on Manafort's part. Manafort finances, however, continue to be the target of investigators for special counsel Robert Mueller. It is worth noting that Russia was reaching out to the Trump campaign's foreign policy people, overtures officials don't recall hearing during the Clinton campaign. A former Obama campaign official says they didn't get those overtures either. It's also worth noting that Trump took 11 days to respond to Russia's biggest diplomat expulsion in history. And when Trump did respond, he brushed the whole thing off and thanked Russia, adding, it saves our payroll. Thanking Russia while threatening North Korea and Venezuela and slamming Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, Democrats, and the media. Few people have as much contiguous knowledge of the Trump campaign, its transition work, and this presidency than Reince Priebus. Priebus has seen a lot from the inside over the past year, but never convinced Trump of his loyalty to Trump. And recently, Priebus was fired as Trump's White House chief of staff. Even more recently, Priebus is someone whose presence has been requested by special counsel Robert Mueller. Mueller's also in talks to speak with other past and present Trump White House officials about certain meetings, who was there, any transcripts or notes or emails about those meetings. Mueller also wants to ask them what they might know about the firing of FBI Director James Comey to help Mueller fill in the blanks on a possible obstruction of justice case. And that brings us back to Priebus, who was approached by James Comey in February to say it was inappropriate for the president to be cornering the FBI director to ask him to stop the investigation of Mike Flynn. Trump officials are said to be concerned about the Mueller investigation now reaching into the White House. They may be more than concerned. They may be ready to fight back hard. Outside lawyers for the president say they will issue a warning to the special counsel that his investigation has gone too far too far afield. And if that warning is ignored, Trump's lawyers say that is cause for Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein to fire Robert Mueller. Trump lawyer Jay Sekulow says that if Mueller follows through on an investigation into a Jared Kushner real estate deal, that warning will be issued and followed up. 
Jared's deal had him investing millions in real estate, the millions coming from an Israeli billionaire. This particular Israeli billionaire was under investigation in four countries for money laundering, in a foreign country that launders money, like Russia. This week, that Israeli billionaire was detained in Israel. Perhaps he'll have something to say to investigators, provided the special counsel who leads those investigators is not fired. The Trump machine is fighting back in other ways, and this may go on your permanent record if you've been to the website disruptj20.org. Trump's government is going after the one and a third million people who've used a website that helps organize anti-Trump protests. Trump's Justice Department is demanding personal information on 1.3 million people from the website's owner, DreamHost, in Los Angeles. DreamHost says it has been served with a search warrant requesting, quote, all information available about this website, its owner, and most importantly, its visitors, end quote. Most importantly, its visitors. The department, headed by Attorney General Jeff Sessions, is asking for, quoting the warrant, names, addresses, telephone numbers, email addresses, business information, and source of payment. The warrant also requests the credit card number or bank account number used in any transactions at that website. DreamHost says he will fight the warrant in court and calls the demand alarming, considering the First Amendment. In a related story, a student activist in Thailand has been sentenced to two and a half years in prison for sharing an article on Facebook that was critical of that country's king. On the last episode of Fire and Fury, we'd just heard Trump's apparent nuclear threat against North Korea, a threat that came not from the test launch of a North Korean missile two weeks ago, but from last week's one unsubstantiated report that North Korea's miniaturized a nuke for its long-range missiles. Trump's fire and fury response also came right after the news that campaign manager Paul Manafort's house had been raided in the middle of the night by Bob Mueller's guys. And it came as Trump's disapproval rating was soaring and his support base shrinking. But North Korea wasn't doing anything it hadn't done already for years. For decades, North Korea's behavior has not changed. The behavior of the U.S. under this president has changed. There was, of course, widespread criticism of the president's reckless talk, so Trump responded with, North Korea better get their act together or they're going to be in trouble like few nations have ever been in trouble in this world. He mused that maybe his original words hadn't been tough enough. When a reporter asked what's tougher than fire and fury, Trump answered, you'll see, you'll see. North Korea also responded to Trump's original fire and fury remark, announcing it would develop a plan for Kim Jong-un's approval to fire four missiles into the water around the U.S. territory of Guam. By last Friday, Trump had added that the U.S. military is, quote, locked and loaded, as if that were not always the case. Trump had by then issued five threats to North Korea in just four days. Trump retweeted the U.S. Pacific Command's post that said B-1 bombers on Guam were ready to shoot down incoming from North Korea. The bomb Guam plan prepared for Kim Jong-un is now reportedly in place, but Kim seems to have tabled that plan, waiting for Trump's next move, which means there's more time for diplomatic moves. And China appears to be helping as much as it feels it can, starting with China's full compliance with the new U.N. sanctions on North Korea. Those new sanctions could cost Kim's government a devastating $1 billion. 
Despite China's good faith efforts, Trump then went on to do the one thing that would anger and alienate China. He ordered an investigation into China's trade practices, an investigation that could restrict Chinese trade with the U.S., which is why China cannot be happy about this, especially after its recent efforts on North Korea. Trump's chaotic Korea policy has been good for business, if you're in the bomb shelter business. Ron Hubbard is. He owns Atlas Survival in Montebello, California, but he says his phone is not ringing as much. Now, he says would-be customers are getting in their cars and driving to his lot to see what's available. He says he's had lines of people at his place over the past week to buy them on the spot, he says, adding, and I've never seen that in my entire career. Sales of gas masks are also up, along with the numbers for potassium iodide, your go-to radiation antidote. A Texas bomb shelter dealer says his business has doubled and that most of his customers are from Japan, but that sales to U.S. customers are up as well. Rising S General Manager Gary Lynch says the shelters he sells are manufactured in Israel. Small world. Iran is threatening to pull out of the international deal that keeps Iran out of nuclear weapons development. Iran's president is just reacting to Trump Treasury Department sanctions leveled in late July, just after Iran test-fired a rocket capable of taking a satellite into space. And earlier this month, Trump signed a bill to toughen sanctions against Iran, as well as North Korea and Russia. And from our wait-what department, while everyone's head was still spinning from Trump's threats against North Korea, he was talking about sending the U.S. military into Venezuela. When a reporter asked Trump about the political crisis in that South American country, Trump responded by saying, we have many options for Venezuela. Cutting quickly to the chase, he added, I'm not going to rule out a military option. Trump then explained it all. This is our neighbor, he instructed, continuing, we are all over the world and we have troops all over the world in places that are very, very far away. Venezuela, he added, is not very far away. We have many options, Trump repeated, including a possible military option, if necessary. Venezuela's defense minister responded by saying, There is an extremist elite in the U.S. government, and I really don't know what is happening and what will happen in the world if humanity will end, if planet Earth will end. As reported here one week ago today, the U.S. expelled a couple of Cuban diplomats back in May to retaliate for an acoustic attack on eight U.S. and at least one Canadian diplomats in Havana. Five U.S. diplomats were forced to end their tours early, one returning with apparently permanent hearing loss. But it may not have been Cuba conducting that attack. It might have been Russia, which has long opposed friendly relations between the U.S. and that communist country that's just 90 miles off Key West, Florida. Those U.S. and Canadian diplomats suffered hearing loss, headaches, migraines, and other symptoms, which led to the discovery of secretly planted devices designed to damage human ears without ever being heard. Cuba's technically able to have or use such a device, but Cuba's short on motive since it wants better relations with the U.S. Things have been more tense since the election of Trump and a Republican Congress that's also opposed to improved relations with Cuba. 
Trump's rolled back many of the travel freedoms made possible by the Obama administration, putting a bit of a chill on the trend toward a better relationship, but not enough to derail that trend. The U.S. intelligence is reportedly investigating the possibility that this acoustic attack was conducted not by Cuba, but by a third party. The Russian government is high on the list of suspects. The attacks were conducted last fall, around the time of the Russian cyber attack on the U.S. presidential election. Republicans have not forgotten or given up their quest to repeal the health care plan nicknamed after Obama. The House Freedom Caucus, formerly known as the Tea Party Caucus, has filed a petition to force a vote on the repeal and replace bill passed by the full House earlier this year, the one that led to a Trump-led victory celebration at the White House Rose Garden. That bill, however, was exposed by the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office for throwing tens of millions of Americans off health care and giving the money saved to the wealthy in the form of tax breaks while raising the premiums on a silver plan by 20%. Protests went up across the land, and the plan tanked in the public opinion polls. Suddenly, support for the Affordable Care Act was up. It rose to its greatest popularity once voters got a look at the Republican repeal and replace plan. The Republicans trying to get this new vote want to vote only on repeal this time, with no replacement that could be studied or criticized. It's critical we keep our promise to the American people, said North Carolina Republican Mark Meadows. Even though polls show 53% of us now approve of Obamacare, even with its flaws. But despite that favorability and despite countless failures to repeal and or replace it, many Republicans are still focused on repeal. Still, they persist, even after failing, despite having control of the House, the Senate, and the White House. Still, they persist, sleep with one eye open, maybe. Just as it took Trump days to even come close to saying the right things about Charlottesville, it also took him days to make an equally obvious move on opioid addiction. Already aware of the national crisis, Trump was advised on Tuesday by his own counsel on the matter to immediately declare a national emergency, either under the Public Health Service Act or a law known as the Stafford Act. Trump was told that day that such a declaration would free his cabinet to take drastic action and it would force Congress to give Trump more money for that effort and more authority to fight it. It was around the close of business two days later that Trump finally declared the opioid crisis an official national emergency. Calling it a problem the likes of which we've never had, Trump mused about the talk of LSD when he was younger and suggested a just-say-no approach for young people today. Maybe by talking to you, said Trump, and telling them, no good, really bad for you in every way. The number of drug overdose deaths in the U.S. has quadrupled since 1999, and overdose is now the number one cause of death for Americans under age 50. And that's even with an underreporting of heroin and opioid deaths. A new analysis shows heroin deaths up by 22%, other opioid deaths up by 24%. There are things we can fix by focusing on the drug companies accused of keeping artificially high the price of addiction drugs and overdose antidotes. A 30-day supply of the addiction-fighting medication Suboxone costs $500. That makes this cure unaffordable for most addicts. Now that it's officially a national emergency, everyone hopes this is an issue the Trump administration can tackle. 
A new study says the use of antidepressants in the U.S. is up 65% since 1999. Most are long-term patients. Most are white. 9% are men, nearly twice as many. 16.5% are women. It isn't clear whether life has gotten more stressful or whether more of us are comfortable about accepting or requesting mental help or both. The nation has other addiction problems, of course. In last week's report, we were updated on the alcoholism crisis that's also exploded in recent years and months. That's the drug epidemic that isn't being addressed. But the battle against nicotine addiction continues, with New York City passing seven new laws this week to curb smoking, one of which raises the minimum price of a pack of cigarettes to 13 bucks. That's every brand, including the so-called bargain brands. It'll jack up the price of a pack in New York by another 2 bucks, pricing cigarettes out of the market for some. Past experience has shown that higher prices do lead to fewer smokers. New York's also slapping a new tax on all other tobacco products, banning the sale of cigarettes at pharmacies, limiting the number of packs any store can sell, and higher license fees for places that sell smokes. The city will also require a license for e-cigarette sales and ban their use everywhere that cigarette smoking is already banned. A new study by Vanderbilt Psychiatric Hospital in Nashville finds that marijuana may be at least somewhat effective in reducing chronic nerve pain. Medical marijuana is legal or about to be in nearly every state plus the District of Columbia, but studies like these remain difficult as marijuana is still banned at the federal level and funding is hard to get. Two pieces of transgender news this week. First, a new study estimates it would cost taxpayers nearly a billion dollars to ban transgenders from serving. The Palm Center study says replacing transgender service members would cost 114 times as much as providing transition care. Transition care is expected to cost the military nearly $8.5 million, according to the RAND Corporation. But banning and replacing those service members would cost 114 times more than that, based on previous studies by the Nonpartisan Government Accountability Office and the Blue Ribbon Commission. Quoting the head of the Palm Center, the president wants to spend a dollar to save a dime, and that really doesn't make much business sense. Trump was elected with the help of supporters who believed in his business acumen. It was three weeks ago that Trump tweeted he would ban transgenders from serving, but the Pentagon says it still hasn't heard from the White House in writing, so transgenders continue to serve, and Trump is being sued by a handful of transgender service members who say their careers have already been damaged by the president's tweet. Defense Secretary James Mattis says the Pentagon is studying the issue, adding, I'm learning more about this than I ever thought I would. Texas Republicans, meanwhile, are learning it won't be so easy to ban transgenders from using a restroom that fits their identity. Texas lawmakers have now failed twice in their efforts to pass the so-called bathroom bill. They failed in the regular session back in June, and they failed again this week in a special session. Texas Republicans are now split on the issue, no longer unified on this effort. The Republican Senate approved the bill, but the state House, which is also Republican-controlled, defeated it. Governor Greg Abbott favors the bill and would sign it if it ever did pass. He's up for re-election next year, along with some of those legislators. But the Texas bathroom bill is opposed by 50 Fortune 500 companies, including Amazon and ExxonMobil. The National Hockey League team in Dallas, the Stars, also oppose it. 
But for now, the Texas bathroom bill is as dead as the president's threat to ban transgenders from the military. The state of Texas continues its war on abortion. However, lawmakers there are now okaying a bill that would require women to pay an extra premium to get health insurance coverage for abortions, even in cases of rape, incest, or severe fetal abnormality. The Republicans behind the bill say it's only fair that other people, mostly men, shouldn't have to help cover the cost of an abortion through their insurance dollars. For women, it can amount to paying for rape insurance. Rape is not a choice made by the victim. Incest pregnancy is not a choice for the victim. Being poor and not being able to pay for the procedure yourself is not a choice. Texas Governor Greg Abbott is expected to sign the bill into law. Sleeping under the stars, shaving down there, and no pineapples, please, in the third and final segment up next. I truly appreciate the support that you have shown for this free and independent newscast by doing as much of your shopping as possible, including your back-to-school shopping, through my Amazon links at buzzburbank.com. You land right on your very own Amazon page and get the same great prices as always. Trump hates Amazon. If you believe in what we're doing here, it's very important. You go to buzzburbank.com, click on the Amazon link, and bookmark the page to make it one of your favorites. Whether you're already a Prime member or shopping Amazon for the first time, going through that link, even just once, helps sustain this program. Amazon has, of course, nearly everything you'd want right to your door in two days or less for Prime members. That's especially handy for the last-minute back-to-school shopping. Plus, you get Amazon Prime Video, which comes with the Prime membership, along with music and books and more. And please use my Amazon link if you make purchases for your office, school, or church, or some other organization. To those of you who already shopped through my link, again, thank you. And if Amazon's not right for you, you can also support this program by clicking on the PayPal button just below the Amazon button in the upper right corner at buzzburbank.com. On any given night in California... 118,000 people sleep under bridges or in tents or boxes. Nearly half of them, 47,000, are homeless each night in Los Angeles. If you owned property in Los Angeles County and the county offered you up to $75,000 to build a second home on that property to house the homeless, would you consider it? These small second houses have previously been known as back houses, granny flats, mother-in-law suites, or guest houses. But these days, they would help ease the rising homeless rate in California, and the county's experimenting with a half million dollars on the table for landowners who would build specifically for the homeless. L.A. Mayor Eric Garcetti says he knows this problem will not be solved overnight. Wells Fargo Bank is once again accused of preying on people. Small business owners are now suing the bank over its business loans, saying it sapped them with ridiculous fees based on rules designed to be confusing. Wells Fargo's already admitted it opened over 2 million accounts for owners who didn't know they had them. It's been accused of sticking car loan customers with insurance policies they didn't need or ask for. And Wells Fargo was recently forced to pay over $100 million for charging our veterans hidden fees on their home loans. Now, in yet another revelation, the bank is accused of scamming small business owners. One guy with a little tour company said Wells Fargo charged him up to 35 bucks every time he didn't hit a minimum of credit card customers. 
A restaurant owner whose place went under was threatened with a huge early termination fee when she tried to close her account. CNN found a former employee who said he was told specifically to target small business owners as new clients since they'd likely not understand the 63-page terms of service agreement. Quoting the former Wells Fargo worker, we used to be told to go out and club the baby seals, mom and pop shops that had no legal support. Wells Fargo denies these claims. The bank's board of directors is increasingly getting impatient for change as the accusations continue to roll in. An uncomfortable topic, teachers having sex with students, but one that needs consideration and clarity from a legal standpoint. An Alabama judge has ruled that the state's law banning sex between high school teachers and their students is unconstitutional. The circuit judge made it clear in dismissing the charge against one male and one female teacher that he was not saying they'd done nothing wrong. In fact, he said they may have broken a law, just not this one. The 44-year-old female teacher was accused of sex with two students, aged 17 and 18. The male teacher was accused of having sex with a 17-year-old. All of the students were at or above the age of consent, and all consented. The judge said the law violated the 14th Amendment, which promises equal protection under the law. He said Alabama's law banning sex between high school teachers and students was too broad, not leaving room to decide whether the sex was an abuse of authority or consensual. Without the opportunity to offer the students' consent as a defense, accused teachers had no defense at all. It left defenseless a teacher who had sex with an 18-year-old who had given legal consent. She was arrested only because she worked at a high school where the 18-year-old was also a student. Shaving pubic hair isn't new. It dates back for centuries. It's currently popular thanks to historically recent trends in pornography. It's mostly an aesthetic thing but also has tactile advantages. Over two-thirds of men in the U.S. and 85% of the women do some bodyscaping. For the ancients, it was considered a kind of cleanliness. But the current fad of shaving down there has also led to an increase of men and women who injure themselves in the most sensitive of places, including the perineum. Some of the injuries are chemical burns from hair removal tonics. The rest come from scissors, razors, and tweezers. Ouch. It's also led to an increase in infections from ingrown hair or cuts. There's concern that shaving down there increases the chance of contracting a sexually transmitted disease because of those injuries. But for now, most of the injuries are minor, if not painful, and even embarrassing. Doctors recommend laser hair removal and seeing a specialist. Quoting one, you know how guys are. I'll fix my car. I'll do this myself, too. Make sure your pharmacist is giving you the best price. CVS and Walgreens are being sued for not telling their customers that it's cheaper to pay out-of-pocket for some generic drugs than it is to use your medical insurance. It's not entirely the drugstore's fault. The trouble starts with what are known as pharmacy benefit managers who determine which pharmacies are covered by a particular insurance company, which companies are in-network, and which are not. CVS and Walgreens are being sued for not telling their customers about this, and the price differences are dramatic. Megan Schultz found out she could have saved 45% on one medication. With no insurance, the drug cost 92 bucks. With her insurance card, Megan paid $166. 
Another customer was paying 22 bucks with his insurance card. Without the card, the drug was 10 bucks. Walgreens says the allegations against it are baseless because it claims those charges are based on what it calls a false premise. These restaurants need to close, said the president of Applebee's, and perhaps should have closed a long time ago. He's not talking about the cuisine. The CEO of Dine Equity, which owns Applebee's and IHOP, says he's closing as many as 135 Applebee's and up to 25 IHOPs. The company plans to expand, meanwhile, in other countries, adding nearly as many overseas eateries as it's closing here at home. On the upside, Applebee's and IHOP plan to start offering fresher, healthier fare, at least along the lines of what's found at Panera and Chipotle. The Cheesecake Factory, meanwhile, is being sued, accused of misleading customers about the gratuity on their bills. On a split check, one customer says he noticed that after choosing the option of a 20% tip, he was charged 40%. The tip on his $38 half of the check was over $15. The restaurant chain had already been criticized for basing its tip suggestions on the grand total, including the tax. Cheesecake Factory defends its convenient tip-calculating system, saying they're only suggestions. The wheels are still turning at Uber to change that company's corporate culture. Ryan Graves is leaving his job as senior vice president of operations and will now just serve as a board member. Meanwhile, another voting member of the board, an investment firm that helped push out Uber founder Tavis Kalanick, isn't stopping at Kalanick's removal. It's now suing Kalanick, accusing him of fraud in hiding some facts and misstating others to get control of more seats on the Uber board. Disney is also being sued, along with three software companies, for collecting personal information about children. The targets were kids playing games on Disney apps, which were co-developed by the companies Upsite, Unity, and Kachava. The apps include Disney Princess Palace Pets and 41 others created for kids under the ages of 13. The lawsuit accuses Disney and its contractors of violating a federal law, the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act. Disney's been here before, paying a $3 million fine six years ago for doing the very same thing. Disney says the lawsuit misunderstands the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act. Like a number of late-night talk shows, this newest one also hails from New York. Available on YouTube, Derailed is shot and performed on New York's L train one Saturday night a month. There are interviews, games, music, and dancing. The host brings with him a desk made of styrofoam. The set's a little noisy, what with the train and the bumping, but host Dean Dimitrick says it's a perfect set for a talk show. That's part of the show, he says. The next guest is revealed when the subway doors open to take on another passenger. We heard recently of the woman who paid a thousand bucks for a flame-resistant sample bag from NASA that contained a trace of moon dust. When she sent it to NASA for verification, NASA confiscated it as stolen property. The thief was convicted in spite of a mix-up between this bag and one that contained no moon dust. The government had mixed them up at a previous auction. The woman sued to get back the bag that she bought, the one with the moon dust, and a judge ruled in her favor. She then sold that bag at auction for $1.8 million. And then, this past week in Florida, a 
couple of college students were browsing in a Space Coast thrift shop when they found a stack of NASA flight suits, five blue flight suits and one white control suit. The students say the flight suits were kind of in a weird corner under a bunch of sweaters. They got all the suits for $1.20, about six cents a piece. They have since learned the suits could be worth over $5,000. NASA officials are scrambling to keep a tighter rein on the artifacts of our adventures in space. If a girl's old enough to steal a car, then she's old enough to change a tire or old enough to try. In Bismarck, North Dakota, a 10-year-old girl took the keys from a man's cubby at the YMCA Fitness Center. Like a true pro, the girl threw the man's wallet and phone out of the car as she drove away. She's 10 years old. She was off to pick up some friends, which she did, telling the other girl she had borrowed the car from a friend so they could all go for a drive. And then she crashed into a curb and got a flat tire. It was just after 10 p.m. when police got a call from a concerned citizen who had noticed this vehicle on the side of the road. When police arrived, the car was surrounded by a group of young girls trying to change the tire. They charged the girl with theft of a motor vehicle and released her to her parents. At a certain restaurant in Japan, your waiter could be a real monkey. That's not a restaurant review. Some of the waiters at the Kayabuki Bar in Yustinomiya are monkeys. The owner had a pet macaque. One day, he handed the monkey some napkins, and Yak-chan took them to some customers. Then a second pet monkey, Fuku-chan, started copying Yak-chan's moves, and suddenly the owner had two monkey waiters. Several other monkeys occupy the restaurant and pose for photos with the guests, but have not yet picked up on waiting tables. They probably will. Monkey see, monkey do. Legendary musician Willie Nelson got too high this week. He had to end a concert in Salt Lake City early Sunday with breathing problems that he blames on the altitude. Nelson had a health scare at the start of this year that forced him to cancel shows in Vegas. He's been reported near death for years, prompting him to record the song Still Not Dead. It's always the drummer. When the Scottish band Bell and Sebastian stopped to gas up their tour bus at a Walmart in North Dakota, six members of the band got back on the bus and rode away to the next gig in Minnesota. And then the front man tweeted, We left Richard in North Dakota. Anyone want to be a hero and get him to St. Paul somehow? The gig hangs in the balance, he wrote. Drummer Richard Colburn, having left his wallet and phone on the bus, sat inside that Walmart for hours in his pajamas with nothing but a single credit card. Later, the lead singer tweeted, We're getting him in a car to Bismarck and flight to Minneapolis. It's always the drummer who gets left behind, but the gig hangs in the balance without him. And finally, you may not bring pineapples to the upcoming music festivals in Reading and Leeds, England. No weapons, no gas canisters, and no animals that aren't guide animals, and no pineapples. You can wear a pineapple costume, but that's it. The three-day music festival this year features the rock band Glass Animals, who sing about pineapples in my head in their song Pork Soda. Fans often bring pineapples to Glass Animals' performances. They did it at Lollapalooza. One fan tweeting, You know Glass Animals are playing Lollapalooza when you see security confiscating pineapples. I'm Buzz Burbank. Thank you for listening and supporting the shows and sponsors at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank news and comments. Buzz, 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 buzz. Buzz, buzz.
The preceding presentation was brought to you by The Realm Network.